I go away to Israel for three weeks and they start making music videos around the church. I don't know what's going on around here, but you probably notice that's all of our worship staff and you're going to see one of these over the next few weeks and we're probably using them for the pre-service at Christmas Eve. But I am so thankful, not just for the talent that God has brought here as it relates to our worship department and our music department, but the, the character that God has brought here. Would you just let them one more time know how much we appreciate them and they bring their A-game every weekend. And we are heading in that time of year. Christmas is just a few weeks away, which means we only have a few weeks left in this year. And I just want to encourage you as a church family, let's finish strong financially. You know, we're less than 1% away from meeting budget. Under 1% away from meeting budget. Can you imagine if our government could say, we're only 1% away from meeting our budget this year? Never going to happen, right? But we're there, and it's been a great year because on top of our budget, we've raised an extra million dollars to plant the Garner campus. We only needed 625, which means we have over $300,000 already setting aside if we find the right place in Fuquay this year to launch a Fuquay campus. And it's, because, it's been because of your incredible generosity this year. So let's keep it up. Let's finish strong. Because when you finish strong, for example, our Agape campus in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, they raised the money on their own, over $450,000 to buy the property to build a building on. We could help them with the building of their building. Lots of things that we can do. I've always said generosity rides into town on the back of, uh, Jesus rides into town on the back of our generosity. And wherever we're generous and wherever we, 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 with that money flows, the gospel shows up and Jesus does amazing things. So thank you and thank you, thank you so much for how you've responded this year, but let's finish strong. Now as a pastor, probably the question I get asked more than any other question is this, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I know for sure who I'm supposed to marry or what school I should go to or what I should major in? How do I know, should I work for IBM or should I work for Cisco? Or what, I mean, what should I do? Where should I work? What is God's will for my life? And here's the thing, it's a tough question because the answer to that question isn't always clear. 
Even if you're just trying as a Christian to be obedient. For example, if you're a Christian, my guess is this. Somewhere along your Christian journey, you've prayed, God, I just want to know what you want me to do. Is it this path or is it that path? You want me to be in this job or this job? You want us to settle in this city or this city? Do you want me to marry this person or this person? I don't really care. I'm good either way. I just want to know what is it you want of me, God? What is it that you want me to do? Now, of course, the other side of the coin is when it's painfully clear what God wants us to do, right? We just don't want to do it. And that comes with its own set of challenges and problems. But there's a third category that I want us to address this weekend, and it has to do with those times in our life when we confuse our circumstances for being God's will or God's plan for our lives. For example, I talk to people all the time, and when you talk to them, there's this utter confidence that they feel like they know what they're supposed to be doing with their life. They know for sure. I mean, they've got the verses you know, they've gotten the advice, all the circumstances are lining up. So what do they do? They step out in faith. They take off in the direction that they're 100% confident that God is leading them in. And then it's like the wheels come off and everything goes wrong. And it's like a total disaster. And after a few months, sometimes even a few weeks, it's, it's, it's very, very evident. Wow, this was a huge, huge mistake. And if you've ever been there, you know what it is to be delusioned and frustrated and discouraged. And if it describes you this weekend, just so you know, you're not alone. My guess is most of us sitting here listening at all of our campuses this weekend, we've been there too. But this is what we're going to learn this weekend. I'm going to give you the principle. This is what we're going to unpack over the next few minutes. Just because something seems like a God thing doesn't mean that it's a God thing. Just because it seems like God has given us the right circumstances, all the stars are pointing in the right direction, the planets have lined up, just because it seems like a God thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's a God thing. Now, we're in this series that we're calling Life Lessons. We're looking at some of the lesser known stories in the life of David. And this weekend, we're going to look at a story where David almost makes a very critical mistake, a huge mistake based on his circumstances. But by the end of the story, he's able to look beyond his circumstances. He makes the right decision. And I think that this story is going to help us learn some very valuable lessons when it comes to, as Christians, how we go about making decisions. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. Let me give you a little bit of background in case you weren't here last weekend. Last week we learned that David, when he was just a young shepherd boy, a teenager, was anointed to be the next king of Israel, the future king of Israel. The problem was there was already a king of Israel on the throne. His name was Saul. And so Samuel, the prophet who had anointed David as the future king, explained to him that God had had it with Saul. And when the time was right, God was going to remove Saul from the throne and David was going to become the king of Israel. Shortly after that, David went out into the valley of Elah, threw the stone that hit Goliath, killed Goliath. The people were celebrating. They were rejoicing, everyone except Saul. He became very jealous, very threatened by David. And then he discovers that David has already been anointed to be the king that's going to replace him. And, and Saul's thinking, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I'm not going to have some snot-nosed kid run me off the throne so that he can be the king. And so Saul decides, I'm going to take care of this problem. He decides that he is going to kill David. And David talk, takes off running for his life. It's a journey that cost him 14 years of his life. And as we pick up the story this weekend, we find King Saul along with 3,000 of his men, his soldiers, and they are in hot pursuit of David. So let's pick up the story, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. 
So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. By the way, we just got back from Israel. We just hiked through the hills of it in Gadi. This word in Gadi is Hebrew, but literally it means spring of the goats. Now, if you want to know what the Greek is for spring of the goats, it's Fuquay. But in Gadi is Hebrew for the spring of the goats. And it's a really cool place. Think about this. This is in the middle of the Sinai Desert, okay? You're looking out at the Dead Sea. It is barren wasteland. And then right in the middle of this, there's this oasis of Engadi. And if you walk through there, there's springs and waterfalls and vegetation and caves. It is the perfect place to hide. I mean, there's food, there's water to drink, there's shelter. There, there are these goats there. They're all over the place. Actually, actually, they're not goats. They're Ibex, I-B-E-X. We actually took some pictures of them while we were there. They're all over the place. So there's food to eat. And for Saul to find David in the area of Engedi would be like finding a needle in the proverbial haystack, right? But that's where David is. And so it says in 1 Samuel 24, verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way. This would be Saul. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were back in the cave. Now, we don't know why David and his men were in the cave. Maybe David gave the men off. Maybe they were playing Uno. I don't know what's going on in the back of the cave. But get this picture. Saul is making his way through this area of Engedi. He's got 3,000 soldiers with him. He's looking for David so he can kill David. And all of a sudden, nature calls now, you say what you want to say about the Bible. The Bible keeps it real, right? Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so they stop, and Saul heads off to find a cave, and it just so happens. Don't you love it when it happens that way in the Bible? It just so happens that Saul chooses the very cave that David and his men are already hiding in. And so Saul, he grabs the shaman, he goes into the cave. So, you know, he wants a little bit of privacy. He takes his armor and sets it aside, takes off his robe, and he goes to the bathroom. And you know what? Laura said that's crude. And I know it's crude, but it's in the Bible. So don't send me an email, right? And then it says in verse 3, David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now remember, David is with his mighty men. 37 skilled warriors. They're named, every one of them are named in Samuel and Chronicles. By name, how cool is that? Your name made it into the Bible because of your, you were one of David's black ops, Navy SEALs, Rangers kind of guy. These guys are all about fighting. They love a good battle. And so they just assume that part of the process of David getting on the throne involves Saul being removed from the throne. So here they are, they're in this cave, and this is what they're thinking. Man, if there was ever anything that was God's will, woo, this has got to be God's will. I mean, what are the odds? So they go to David and say, David, this is the day that God has promised you. We're in the cave, Saul sitting right over there going to the bathroom. We can take him out with one blow. We won't need a battle. There won't have to be a lot of bloodshed. David, we can take him out with one blow, cut his head off. You can carry his head outside the cave just like you did Goliath's cave. Those 3,000 Goliath's head, those 3,000 soldiers will see you, and they will know that you are now the new king of Israel, and they will bow down to you. David, this is a no-brainer. Look at all these circumstances that line up. And, I mean, you can't blame them. I mean, can you think of one more circumstance 
that you could actually add to this story that makes it look more like a God thing. I mean, what are the odds, okay, in all the hills of En Gedi and all the caves, there are caves everywhere. What are the odds that Saul would pick that cave on that day? I mean, if this isn't God's will, right, what is? And I think that's where we all live when we're making our decisions based on our circumstances. And when our circumstances line up with the very thing that we've been praying for, we think, how in the world can this not be the will of God? I mean, you weren't even looking for a boyfriend, right? When you just made that unplanned stop at Trader Joe's. <laughs> and there he was. I mean, right by the beer cooler. It was like the heavens parted, the light came down, you know, he glowed. And you're thinking, this is the guy I have been praying for that God would bring into my life my entire life. He's handsome. He's a Christian. He goes to church. He loves his mom. He likes beer. He uses essential oils. We even have the same color Bible. What are the odds? This has to be a God, see, a God thing. See, we think that way. Or maybe you've been praying for a new job. And all of a sudden, this new opportunity comes along. And this opportunity is in perfect alignment with what you've been wanting, what you've been praying for. And, and so naturally you think, well, it has to be a God thing, right? But here's the fact. When our circumstances begin to line up with what we want, when our circumstances begin to line up with what we've been praying for, and then add to that our amazing ability to twist and manipulate what the Bible says, and then add to that the advice of, let me just say, well-meaning people who look at our circumstances, who hear our situation, we tell them our story, and their response is, it's got to be a God thing, right? I'm telling you, when those things happen, it's almost impossible to convince us that the situation we find ourselves in isn't from God. But this is what I want you to hear this weekend. God's will, determining God's will, is never as simple as just interpreting our circumstances. I remember years ago when I first started the church, and we were actually, I mean, we were just a few weeks in, and we were still meeting in East Cary Middle School, and, and in those days, uh, I mean, people basically came to visit us because in those days, I think Cary was about 34,000, but it was growing like crazy. Everybody was new, and everybody was looking for a place to make friends, and often they would come to church just looking. That seems like a safe place to make friends, and a couple came. They were from Michigan. They had relocated down here with his job. Uh, a few weeks into being around Hope, I had the opportunity to lead both of them into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we began to mentor them and disciple them, and, and we began to love them. They were a part of our church family, and his name was Dave. One night he called me and he said, Mike, you won't believe this. You won't believe what God has done, but we are moving back to Michigan. I'm like, whoa, what happened? He said, well, the company called me, offered me a job, huge promotion, huge salary increase. Not only that, we found out we're expecting and we're going to be back home close to parents. I mean, obviously, this has to be God's will. And I said, well, I mean, it does, it does sound good, but have you even prayed about it? What's there to pray about? And I get this. I mean, I, man, I run into you guys all the time, and you're like, we're relocating. Where are you going? Well, I got a new job, got a new promotion, making more money. Obviously, it's God's will, right? But in this situation, you know what happened? Within six months, he called me from Michigan after they left. He said, Mike, it's been a big disaster. The job wasn't exactly what they explained it to be. It was creating a lot of stress at home. Not only that, we have a new baby. And he says, as of right now, we're actually separated. And I don't think we're going to be able to put this whole thing back together. Because, see, he lined up his circumstances and said, it must be a God thing. You know what? Every one of us, we could probably pass the microphone around. We could all tell similar stories from our own lives. Now, here's the good news. 
God hasn't left us here to try and determine his plan for our lives based on our circumstances, based on what's going on around us, and I'll tell you why. It's because our circumstances are always loaded with emotion. There are no emotion-free circumstances. And when emotion gets attached to circumstances, it clouds our ability to discern what is of God and what's not of God. And if you don't believe that, just think about the last big purchase you made. I guarantee you there was some emotion involved. In fact, think about the last big purchase you wish you hadn't made. And you knew you shouldn't have made it, but you made it because you needed it and because everybody else has one and because this is finally going to make you happy. So you buy it, but what happens? See, after the emotions begin to go away, what do you do? You begin to regret the purchase, right? What, what do you call it? Buyer's remorse. We've all been through that. Think about a relationship in your life that you could just go back and hit delete. A relationship you, were, you could just erase from your past. I guarantee you there were a lot of emotions floating around when you decided to get involved in that relationship, when you made that decision, and it clouded your ability to think clearly. And you look back like, what was I thinking, right? It was your emotions. That's the nature of emotions. That's the nature of circumstances. And that afternoon in that cave, I'm telling you, in this story, there were some heavy-duty emotions floating around. There was hate. There was jealousy. There was love. There was revenge. There was fear. There was anger. I mean, here's the guy sitting in the cave with David, going to the bathroom, who ran David out of his home. This is the guy who ruined David's reputation. Here's the guy that David risked his life to defend. This is the guy that caused David to lose his best friend. Trust me, there were some heavy duty emotions swirling around. And do you know what the emotion said? David, kill him. Kill him. Take your place as the rightful king of Israel. Kill him, David. There is no way that this isn't a God thing. Because nobody other than God could arrange these circumstances. But fortunately, we saw last week that David had learned because of the story at Nob, remember? It was a costly decision because he took matters into his own hands. And so now David responds the way that we have to learn to respond when we're trying to sort out through all the emotions and all the circumstances, is this God's will or is this not God's will? Let me show you what happens. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Now, I want you to imagine this scene. Saul is on his haunches, taking care of business. He's looking out through the cave opening. He's thinking things like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen the sky that blue before. It's a pretty day. And I wonder how those goats stay up on that hill. You know, I've never, never seen one fall off one of those hills, right? He is just totally preoccupied. And David sneaks up, cuts off a part of his robe. But instead of running back to his men, all excited and high-fiving them about what he's done, all of a sudden, immediately, he feels guilty. Look what it says in verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. I wish I had time, but you'll have to read the rest of the story, but let me give you a little Reader's Digest version. When Saul leaves the cave and goes back out to his men, 
David walks outside the cave. He says, hey, Saul. Saul turns around, there's David. And David holds up the piece of the robe. Saul, I was this close to you. Your life was in my hands. I could have killed you in a heartbeat if I wanted to. But I didn't. Because I love you. And because you're my king. And so why are you doing this to me? Why are you threatened by me? And Saul responds to David, David, you're a better man than I am. And he says, surely one day you will sit on the throne as the king of Israel. And for a brief period of time, Saul backed off. Didn't last long, but he backed off. But this is the question I want you to think through. What gave David the ability to see through all of these circumstances that just seemed to be a God thing, right? And then make the right decision. Well, if you think through the story, David really made his decision based on three things. First of all, the law of God. Second were the principles of God. The third would be the wisdom of God. I want you to see David's respect, first of all, for the law of God. After his soldiers try to get David to strike down Saul, David says, hang on, guys, slow down. Take a deep breath before we do anything foolish. Hello, this is the king. This is the king of Israel. And maybe you've forgotten it, but it's actually against the law to kill the king of Israel. And the men are like, oh, yeah, man, I almost forgot that. But David, he's trying to kill you. I mean, this almost falls into the category of self-defense. And David's like, it doesn't really matter how we feel. It doesn't even matter what we think. The Bible has already addressed it. It's against the law to kill the king. In fact, Psalm 105, verse 5, it says, do not touch my anointed one. It's God's law. And then you see the principle. By the way, what's the difference between a law of God and a principle of God? Well, I'll give you an example. Let's say you're driving down the freeway and you see a sign that says speed limit, 65 miles an hour. What is that? That's a law. And if you don't obey the law, there will be consequences. But if you see a sign that says drive carefully, that's a principle. In other words, if it's sunny and the road is dry, you may drive 65 miles an hour, right? But if it's snowing and the road's slippery, you would be wise to drive carefully, right? So that's the difference between a law and a principle. What would be an example of the law of God? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul wrote, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Now here's the law. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That is one of God's laws. It was written down for us. We're to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. And how have we been forgiven? As Christians, we have been forgiven totally and unconditionally. And so we are to forgive one another totally and unconditionally. That's the law. Now, a principle to that law would be something like this. I can give up on you when Jesus gives up on me which is never gonna happen, and you get the point. In other words, when Jesus decides, I don't wanna love you totally or unconditionally, or forgive you totally and unconditionally anymore, then I can stop forgiving you, but that isn't gonna happen. But that would be the principle based on the law of God. So let's go back to the story of David. The law was, it's against the law to kill the king. Here's God's principle. Don't displace what God has put in place. You don't remove what God has put in place. In other words, David says, listen, since God is the one who established Saul as king, it's God's job to remove Saul from being king. 
And I'm sure the men responded like our friends would respond, right? But what about his character? I mean, that guy's a loser. That guy's shady. That guy's been trying to kill you. What about that guy? And David says, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Since God put him there, we're going to wait for God to take him out of there. That's a principle. And David knew it. And then there's, there's the wisdom of God. And wisdom asked this question. What's the wise thing to do in this situation in light of my future? So even if it, even if it, it checks off God's law, you're okay there. Even if it checks off God's principle, you're okay there. You got to ask yourself, is this really the wise thing to do in light of my future? And I think David maybe, as he thought about this, like, man, is this smart? I mean, do I want to be having dinner with my family one night and my teenagers say, hey, Dad, tell us the story about the time that you killed King Saul and took over the throne. David's thinking, do I, I really want to tell my teenagers? Well, Saul was in a cave going to the bathroom, and I just happened to be in there, so I went up and stabbed him. And that's how I became the king of Israel. Can you imagine teenagers getting hold of that little bit of information? Oh, Dad, ooh, you're so brave. You're so courageous. It must have been terrifying to kill Saul while he was sitting defense, defenselessly on a toilet. I mean, I mean, you're such a big man, right? right? Who wants to have that conversation with their teenagers? So David's processing all this. Plus, David, think about this. He had learned a valuable lesson from the story that we just looked at last weekend. He knew that if he manipulated the circumstances so that he could become king, he would always have this question in the back of my mind, back of his mind. Did God put me here or did I, through manipulation, put myself here? Have you ever done something where you gave God the glory, but at night when you were laying in bed, you thought, I probably made that happen. I've done that. I've done that. I've led churches through things where we call it a God thing, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm not sure it was a God thing. I'm not sure we didn't take over and just manipulate the situation into reality. And many times, God blesses us anyway in spite of ourselves. But there's something about knowing the confidence, having the confidence that God actually did this. See, David needed the confidence of knowing that God established him as king when it was time to be established as king. Because David knew that once he became the king, once he took the throne, there were going to be some tough times ahead, just like there are tough times in our lives. And if we're going to survive the tough times in our lives, we need to know we're exactly where God put us. See, when your marriage is struggling and on the rocks, you, you need to know that you're in a marriage that God put you in. Or, or, if, or if you're in school and, and you're frustrated and, and the loans are piling up and you're thinking about quitting, you want to know, no, God put me here. Or this career, God put me here. I'm telling you, when I started the church, I wanted to quit about every hour the per first four or five years. And the only thing that kept me going was that I, I knew God had put me here. But if in the back of our mind, if we're always wondering, did God put me in this situation or did I manipulate the circumstances to get here? We're never going to have the confidence we need to have to be able to face the future with the attitude, listen, God put me here. And even though everything around me looked chaotic and out of control, God put me here, so God's going to have to sustain me while I'm here. This isn't my problem. 
This is God's problem. So David says to his men, guys, back down. We're not going to touch him. I know this doesn't seem like a coincidence. You, I get it. What are the odds, right, men, that this would actually happen? But we don't make decisions based on our circumstances. This is wrong. It's against God's law. It violates his principles. And it's certainly men, soldiers, warriors. It's not what we want to look back on and remember. Now, let me just say this. Some of you, you're right on the edge. You're right on the verge of making some decisions. And as you make those decisions, maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it has to do with your finances, your future, some goals, uh, where you're going to go to college, what you're going to major in, who you're going to marry. Understand, as you get to the crossroads of these decisions, you're going to have all kinds of options. So here are the questions you should ask. Does this violate one of God's laws? Second, does this violate one of God's principles? By the way, how do you know what God's laws and God's principles are? There's only one way, right? you got to know this book. I mean, God took the time to write it down for us. So it's right here in black and white. So does it violate one of God's laws? Does it violate one of God's principles? But here's the tough one. Is it the wise thing to do? In other words, as I think about my, my future hopes and dreams, like who I'm going to marry, what I want my marriage to look like, when I think about my career and, and, and what I feel God wants me to do in my career, when I think about my financial goals in life, this decision that I'm getting ready to make, is it going to hinder me from becoming what I know God wants me to be? Is it going to prevent me from doing what I know God wants me to do? you got to take that into consideration. Now let me ask you a question. Can you imagine the dynamics of our marriages and how they would change if we just asked these three questions when faced with a decision? Can you imagine how it would change the dynamics of our family if each family member was responsible and asked these questions? Can you imagine how it would change our culture? I mean, this is the way God, if, 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 if the world was the way God created it, can you imagine if people in our culture simply asked these three questions? Instead of us having all these debates and arguments, all these divisions that just, you know, wait, wait a second. What if we just stopped and said, well, does it violate one of God's laws? Does it violate one of God's principles? Is it really the wise thing to do? I'm telling you, these questions apply to every situation. For example, Let's say you're a Christian, you know, and you, you want to marry someone who's not a Christian. You fell in love. They're wonderful people, very decent, very moral, but they're not a Christian. So you're thinking, is it okay for me to marry? Well, go, go through the grid. First, does it violate one of God's laws? Well, this is an easy one. This is a layup. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together, with, which means Christians are not supposed to marry someone who is not a Christian. That's a law. God wrote it down. So right away, you don't even have to worry about it. But let's go to the next one. Does it violate one of God's principles? Well, Amos 3.3, 3, do two walk together unless they agree to do so? In other words, can two people take a walk together unless they agree to do so? They agree to go in the right direction, the, the same direction. They, they agree to go at the right pace together. And the answer is no. I mean, this is just common sense. And the same thing, if you're a Christian and you consider marrying someone who's not a Christian, you're not going to be walking together. 
If you're truly a Christian, you're going to have different values. You're going to have different priorities. You're going to see child rearing differently. What you do with your money, you're going to see differently. How you spend your time, you're going to see it differently. And then third, is this the wise thing to do? Now let me just say something. This doesn't mean that your circumstances are always wrong. It just means that you have to look beyond your circumstances and you have to ask these three questions. By the way, let me say something. God's will and God's plan for your life will never violate God's law or God's principles. I've had people tell me they were in affairs and they said, but we believe, we believe God's gonna bless us because we just, our love is so pure. I'm like, you're having a freaking affair. How pure can your love be, right? But that's what kind of lies we believe. What you feel God is telling you is never, ever going to violate his law or his principles. Now, let me just say one more thing and we're out of here. Some of you are not into this at all. And that's okay. In fact, you're here because somebody invited you to be here and you were too nice to say no. So you came. Well, let me say, we're just glad you're here. You're like our, our honored guest, and we hope you've had a good time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you thought, well, I didn't think church would be like that, you know? I mean, you saw music videos. I mean, I mean, I hope you'll come back and see us again, especially as we head into Christmas. I'm telling you, Christmas Eve at Hope Community Church is magical. So if you're looking for a place just to spend a family Christmas Eve, 45 minutes, you will absolutely have a blast. But since you're here, I want to challenge you to try something. You see, I bet that you wouldn't have made some of the decisions that you regret making in your life if you would have made those decisions in accordance with God's law, God's principles, and the wisdom of God. It doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible is the word of God or it's not. I mean, let's face it, we all go to Barnes & Noble, drop 20, 25, 30 books, we'll buy, we'll buy a self-improvement book trying to find wisdom so we can be better, so that we can make better decisions. Those books aren't inspired by God, and that doesn't bother us. Oprah's books aren't inspired by God. That doesn't bother us, right? But maybe you're here this week, and you've kind of just written off the Bible because you don't believe that it came from where we actually believe it came from. So forget the source and the origin for just a second. I challenge you to read the Bible. Strictly from the standpoint, I need to quit screwing up so much, and I need to make better decisions. Let me tell you what I know about the Bible. You will make better financial decisions. In fact, most of your consumer debt that you have, you wouldn't have if you just followed what the Bible says about how to handle your finances. It's brilliant stuff. It's incredible wisdom, and it's just common sense. Most financial planners in America would tell you probably the exact same stuff. Guess where they got it? Right here. I'm telling you right now, your marriages would be better if you just followed the principles about marriage that are in the Bible, your marriage may have survived if you would have just followed the biblical principles. See, I don't care whether you believe it's inspired by God or not. So here's my challenge to you. Would you start reading the Bible? It's just a baby step. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. You can go by our next step at any of our campuses. You can download it onto your phone. Heck, I got enough. I'll give you one of my Bibles if you just ask. Not one of my good ones that's got my notes in it, but one I don't ever use. But you can have one of those, right? And would you just start reading it? And don't just say, well, I'm going to start. What's this book called? Guinnesses. Guinnesses. That's a beer, isn't it? No. Don't just start in Guinnesses. I would recommend you find a book like Proverbs. 
That just sounds like wisdom, right? Or go to the latter part of the Bible and find a little book in the Bible called James. It's actually the most practical book in the Bible. It's five chapters. You can read it in about 30 minutes. It includes incredible, in fact, just in the book of James, by the time you get out of chapter one, you'll know how to handle tough times in your life. You know what else James talks about? Racism, partiality, how we treat people and see people the way God treats and sees us. He talks about the power of the words that come out of your mouth, how you can either bring life into a relationship or you can bring death into a relationship. He talks about how to be humble and the power that's in humility. So you, the world won't tell you that. The world will tell you, you got to be on top. You know, you got to climb the ladder. You got to keep everybody else down. James says, mm -mm. no, you're going to find there's incredible power in being humble. You get to chapter five, and you know what James says? Hey, for those of you who are rich, let me give you some insight about how you handle your resources, right? That's just in five chapters in the book of James. Would you just read the Bible? Not because you think it's inspired. Not because you think it's from God, but because the wisdom of this book will save you from a lot of headaches and a lot of heartaches in life. But let me just warn you, let me just warn you, especially as we're heading into the Christmas season. As you read the Bible, <laughs> you may come to the conclusion that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Savior of the New Testament, remember unto us is born today, Luke 2, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, you may come to the conclusion that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Savior of the New Testament is, in fact, Jesus Christ. You may get there. But even if you never get to that conclusion, I'm telling you, the laws of God, the principles of God, and the wisdom of God will save you from nightmares. That's what David learned. And you'll learn that too. And I just want to leave you with this. I want you to know this. The God of heaven who is head over heels in love with you can't wait to communicate with you. But he's going to communicate with you through his word. God is not playing a cosmic game of hide and seek, you know, like, ooh, what does he want me to do? Why can't I figure? That, that's not God. He wants you to know his plan. He wants you to know his will for your life. But you're most likely going to find it here. So give God's word a chance. You'll be amazed what will begin to happen in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simple truth of your word. It's here for us. It is the roadmap for life. It is all we need to make the decisions that allow us to be the people that you created us to be. And Father, for many of us, it's been a roadmap that's led us back into a relationship with you. As we learned what your son, Jesus Christ, the price he paid on the cross so that we could be reconciled back into a relationship with you. Father, I pray for those who are here just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity that they would understand that long before we got interested in God, God was already pursuing us. In fact, the Bible is nothing more than an epic love story where God created us to be in a relationship with himself. He created us in a relationship. We didn't even have to do anything to get in the relationship, but mankind screwed it up. And the rest of the Bible is nothing more than God's pursuit of bringing us back into a relationship with him. A relationship that allows us to have a life that he designed for us to live. And not only that, when we take our last breath on planet earth, we know that we get to spend all eternity in a, with him in an incredible place called heaven. 
I pray for those who haven't gotten there yet. May the holiday season put it forefront on their minds. And I hope they'll make that decision. And Father, for the rest of us, we just want to stop making messes. We just, we just want to make better decisions. We don't want to have those, have those conversations. Why can't I learn? Why do I keep finding myself in this situation? We find ourselves in those situations because we're not going through the grid of, does it violate God's laws? Does it violate his principles? In light of my future, is it the wise thing to do? Help us to get there so we can experience the life that you created us to live. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.